Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I am Beke Ukelina, your host. My guest today is Dennis Van Furen. He's a researcher and anti-corruption activist, formerly director at the Institute for Security Studies. He's the director of Open Secrets, a non-profit seeking private sector accountability for economic crimes and related human rights violations. Today, we are going to discuss his book, Appetite, Gun, Money, a of profit. Henry, welcome to the show. Becky, good day. Thanks so much for having me and greetings to the listeners. Could you share with me a little bit about your background? How did you become interested in anti-corruption work? Yeah, thanks, Becky. Um, you know, I'm, I've been working on issues of corruption for almost two decades now. Um, but at, at the reason why I tackle this work on corruption and, and colleagues as well is at its root, it's not a question of focusing on corruption um, as a technocratic issue, but rather as a social justice issue. It's appreciating the impact that economic crime has on the lives of ordinary people, how it disempowers people and empowers, further empowers um, often criminalized elites. Um, I've been working at different organizations, Transparency International for a number of years, and, and then undertaking research subsequently in South Africa, um, and I guess, you know, throughout that process, realized that in many of our, the countries where I work on the African continent, we spend a lot of time trying to develop rightly so um, policy responses to economic crime. And those are important. Um, but what we've seen in South Africa over the last two decades is you can have probably one of the best anti-corruption systems, which we had developed particularly about 10 or 12 years ago. But if you don't keep track of the corrupt networks of the individuals and particularly of the global network of corporations and others who support that, um, you know, the undoing of that system can happen very quickly. And today in South Africa, um, parts of our state have been criminalized over the last years as a result of, of precisely state capture and corruption. So, and um, you mentioned in the book that this is very personal. Writing this book is very personal for you. You are obviously South African. Uh, what is going on in South Africa today that you think this story needs to be told? Yeah, so, so Becky, as I was alluding to, um, you know, one of the, the I think, of the predominant uh, story in our politics over the last years in South Africa has been the story of corruption. Um, we saw our immediate past president, a man by the name of Jacob Zuma, embroiled in a massive scandal and which we've termed state capture in South Africa, effectively a small uh, family um, from India who relocated to South Africa, um, built up a, a, a business empire of sorts, but did so largely through the connections they had with the president, Jacob Zuma, and a coterie of people around him and became very wealthy off the process. Now, they won't be the first people to do something like this in South Africa. The difference was that the state, in a way, was being repurposed to line the pockets of um, this network of individuals and state-owned 
companies, utilities were all being repurposed in part for this for this process. Uh, but you know, the more we dig around this, um, and, and why I was talking about the fact that policy responses are not sufficient, was an appreciation that it cannot be a question of just this just happening suddenly, you know, quite, le- quite sort of almost 25 years into South Africa's democratic project. How did this come about? And the work that my colleagues and I have done in the past has pointed towards other big scandals immediately after the um, the end of Nelson Mandela's administration. Thabo Mbeki had been elected president of South Africa. South Africa bought weapons from European arms companies in the late 1990s. Recall this was a time when South Africa couldn't afford weapons, certainly didn't need them, wasn't fighting any wars in Southern Africa or anywhere else, and if anything, needed uh, equipment for peacekeeping operations. But instead, this newly independent democratic government um, spent an amount of about um, seven or eight billion dollars in buying weapons um, at a time that it couldn't provide medication to 300,000 South Africans who were dying of HIV AIDS at the time. And that was done through bribery largely. Big European arms companies, British Aerospace, um, Thales in France, uh, Saab in Sweden, German arms companies, Ferrostal and others, were, we believe, all involved in corrupting this newly democratic government of South Africa. And I guess the question is, you know, we found links between the state capture, which I spoke of first under Jacob Zuma, these arms scandals of the late 1990s, and the fact that what had happened by politicians implicated in these scandals was that they tried to disable the country's democratic institutions um, in order to ensure that they were never prosecuted. And this made the current wave of corruption easier. But, you know, that isn't the end of the story. If we pull the string further back into contemporary history, if you like, the 1970s and 80s, um, the question was what was happening there during the period of sanctions in South Africa and does that at all inform the corruption that we saw in the democratic state? And, you know, the very short answer, Becky, we can go into more detail, obviously, is that we found that this network of corruption, these European arms companies that were bribing the South African government in the late 1990s, were in fact, or many of them were involved in illicit relationships with the apartheid regime. And so if you fast forward straight all the way back to 2019, 25 years into democracy, we find direct links between um, the apartheid past, this this totalitarian past where South Africa was ruled by a white white minority government, uh, and the story of corruption as pervasive as it has become today. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things I find really, really fascinating about your book, this connection between um, elite uh, corruption uh, today in South Africa and what happened during the, uh, during the apartheid um, uh, regime. Uh, let's speak a little bit more uh, about the sanction-busting strategies or global networks uh, during this apartheid uh, regime. Yeah, thanks, Becky. I mean, maybe just to to step back for a moment, you know, if we take ourselves back to the 1970s, it was a result of the work of the global anti-apartheid movement 
and its response to the repression in South Africa by the apartheid regime and, of course, the wars in Southern Africa. Remember, there was the very hot war in Angola, the invasion of Southern Angola by South African troops in the in the mid-1970s, uh, the murder of Steve Biko, a prominent South African activist, and the imprisonment of many young children, students, protesting in Soweto in the mid-1970s that led the United Nations to pass what were to become mandatory sanctions um, and would have meant that it was effectively should have become law in all UN member states that the supply of weapons to the apartheid state should be criminalized, precisely because the regime was involved in these wars both in its neighborhood, but also in South Africa and the oppression of its people, it needed sophisticated weapons and technology. Um, and it needed partners who could supply this. And so what it be, what what had been a relatively open over trade of weapons uh, with many countries was now pushed underground. And what the apartheid state did uh, was develop a network, which we really refer to as this deep state network of, of arms companies and middlemen and governments and political parties and bankers um, who were all involved in this network of profiteering in supplying weapons and weapons technology uh, and oil as well to, to these all important commodities to, to the apartheid regime. We argue in the book that if this had not taken place, um, the the duration of the apartheid regime could certainly have been curtailed. And, you know, as, as you well know at the time, apartheid was in fact a a crime against humanity. So it wasn't a mere trifle of doing business with just another with another government. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the reasons I think we set out were not only about the Cold War at the time and where those allegiances were, but very often it was about making money. Um, and, and I guess just to bring it to the point is much of the material in the book has been disclosed for the first time precisely because in at the end of many uh, repressive regimes, while there's often a focus on the perpetrators of violence, the police officers, intelligence officers who've murdered people or people who've been disappeared, we very seldom focus on the economic criminals. And it was no different in South Africa. The end of uh, the apartheid rule, Nelson Mandela is elected president, the first democratic government. And South Africa has a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that considers many of these acts of violence. But crucially, the commission did not investigate these economic crimes which we spoke of. So the investigation that led to this book uh, was really to try and uncover a piece of hidden history, something that had never been talked about we felt sufficiently exposed in South Africa and certainly hadn't happened anywhere else in the world. So what was the reason that the new government, the Mandela government, did not um, prosecute these past, um, past crimes? Was it because they did not want to wreck the peace process that was very fragile? Yeah, that's certainly one of the reasons, Becky. I think it's a, an astute observation. And look, there's no doubt um, that the you know if we think about the first years after the transition period, this wasn't an, wasn't a walk in the park for Mandela and and the newly elected leaders. Um, South Africa had been at war. There had been um, thousands of people had lost their lives in the early 1990s in in a, in a what was really a low scale uh, civil war in South Africa. Um, there was every push to try and retain peace. And of course, 
any range of actors could dis- derail this process. Now, to be very clear, I don't. We don't have any evidence in the book that suggests that um, international banks and and intelligence agencies held a gun to the government's head to say, if you release any of this material, if you investigate us, we'll we'll overtly harm you. But you know, in the world of real politics, I think one can appreciate that um, democratic leaders are very hesitant to go after the big economic players who have enabled the system of repression because they rely on them. The same Swiss bankers who were bankrolling the apartheid regime were the Swiss bankers that South Africa as a democratic state went to um, and, and in a way had to go to to ask for new lines of credit, for extension of credit. And, uh, um, you know, I think there's a strong argument for this odious debt that the apartheid regime had left the democratic government to be written off. But um, given the fact that South Africa chose a model of operating in within the global financial system, um, it had to play nice in a way with many of these very powerful forces. And that meant that so much of this tale of duplicity um, in a way was not conveniently, but I think in some instances quite deliberatively um, put aside, uh, you know, in, in order to give this this new democratic government the space to to try and establish itself. It seems to me that there was a lot of um, a lot of duplicity when we talk about uh, the apartheid regime its relations with um, with other countries or other businesses um, around the world. And you mentioned in the book that many of the countries that aided the apartheid regime had also officially supported uh, sanctions against uh, South Africa. Can you help me unpack this? Yeah, Becky. I mean, you know, we, we identified, we worked through, through um about 25 different archives in, in seven or eight different countries. The research took us um, five years, myself and, and one or two colleagues who worked on this. And, um, you know, what sifting through about a million, a million and a half pages of documents and, and many interviews, we came across this quite extraordinary tale, if you like, of through official documents, primarily much of it from South Africa's military intelligence archives, which showed that we were able to identify at least 50 countries that were providing covert support to the apartheid regime. Crucially, though, um, these were countries large and small and included all five members of the United Nations Security Council. So United States, France, uh, Soviet Union or or Russia as it is today, uh, China, and of course, uh, um, uh, the United Kingdom as well. And it's important to note this because those were the members of the Security Council that were there to police the 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 sale of weapons to the apartheid government as as the global policeman at the time but what we saw was that the cops were in fact corrupt the the you know the the governments in in many of those countries the political administrations the elites sometimes up to a, a level of prime minister for example in France very important corporations in all those countries um, were on the one hand making sometimes quite powerful statements against apartheid on in global fora but um, they were very willing to do backroom deals as long as it was to their advantage uh, under the, this veil and this cloak of secrecy. Uh, let's talk about the U.S. since you mentioned some of those countries. Um, in the book, you mentioned a former U.S. Senator, Richard Stone, uh, who uh, 
took on this role of changing the media uh, perceptions of uh, South Africa. He was even invited on a visit to the South Africa. How successful were his efforts? Yeah, so so he was an interesting example of somebody, you know, a, a Democrat, Democratic uh, senator from from Florida, who, to my knowledge, is still alive, um, and uh, he had been, you know, quite central to Ronald Reagan's uh, politics in in um, Central America. If, I, if I'm right, he was a special envoy to the uh, Reagan government in in Central America in the early 1980s, um, and he was one of the types of people that the apartheid regime was not only involved involved in the covert supply of weapons, but it was also lobbying hard uh, to try and change perceptions uh, in its favor um, uh, at a government level and a business level in the United States. In a way, you could argue that many other countries continue to do today, whether it's uh, Israel or Russia or other countries in countries like, uh, um, like the United States. And from what we can see at the time that sanctions, particularly the trade sanctions were starting to bite, the apartheid government was looking, it had employed a whole range of um, of lobbyists on K Street to to assist it uh, in, in polishing its image. But it then turned to people like, like uh, uh, Stone Richards or Dick Stone, as he's known. And Dick Stone was, from what we can see, was going to be employed to do precisely this. An amount of up to $50 million was dangled, uh, you know, in front of him. Um, and uh, I contacted him, spoke to him, uh, had asked to interview him, and he wasn't interested in meeting face-to-face. Uh, and first and any knowledge of this and when I pushed the matter a little bit and said to him well we have documents that shows that he visited South Africa he said well he does remember and I think he, he you know one of the things he referred to was fondly remembering the animals as he said in South Africa and and then you know pressing this man further who was very lucid mind uh, and his his children had in fact facilitated the interview so it wasn't that I'd ambushed him a very lucid mind and you know then I pushed him and said well we have records which suggest that you have met amongst others, with the South African state president, P.W. Boerta. And he was, you know, he then, in, to my mind at least, feigned knowledge and said uh, something along the lines of the fact that he uh, had made many heads of state and he forgets who all of those are. And look, I'm, I'm sure that might be the case. But if you're going to meet P.W. Boerta in apartheid South Africa, I would reckon you're going to remember that. Um, and, and his story is instructive because these are people that are regarded as amongst the great and the good, uh, you know, in their latter day in various communities in the United States and other countries. But their own stories, their own biographies, their own links to the apartheid states suggest that there's much more complexity there. Uh, and and uh, the archives and these type of records help us to unpack that. Yeah, the link also um, between the United States and apartheid uh, South Africa that I actually found surprising or even shocking in the book um, are the African-Americans who actually lobbied for apartheid South African government. My question is why? Money, Becky. I mean, I, I think that's an important motivator. Um, we shouldn't forget that there were governments on the African continent, heads of states, who um, were very happy to collaborate with the apartheid regime as well. And and so, you know, if you take that into, although this, this is despite the fact that there were governments, I mean, let's just think about the people of Nigeria who would pay a tax in support of the anti-apartheid movement. So, uh, you know, I think there are people who make different choices, but 
you're right. It's, I think it was quite extraordinary um, to find these details, which we found in the records of, uh, of lobbyists, again, on K Street, and an attempt by the apartheid government to identify African-Americans who would help them to tell their story. Um, and, uh, you know, a U.S.-based uh, writer, Ron Nixon, has written an excellent expose on this as well called Selling Apartheid. Um, but it really is quite an extraordinary story of the type of people that the apartheid regime was looking for uh, to, you know, to be the face of its propaganda. And they paid handsomely for this. In their documents, in their internal correspondence, they are very clear, this is the South African government at the time, that um, that they need African-American voices to lend credibility to their notion that apartheid was a just cause, an opportunity to give uh, different racial groups uh, equal opportunities in separate areas, which of course is a complete fallacy and a lie. Um, but uh, but hence the you know hence they had deep pockets and uh, and were, were ready to pay the lobbyists to do their their bidding, if you like, in the process. Um, in the book, you address seven myths that have informed a false or misleading narrative about the nature of apartheid and economic uh, crimes in South Africa. So I just want to quickly, I'm sure my listeners will be interested in knowing what the seven myths are. I'm just going to quickly mention each one of them and you just tell me a little bit about, about them. Corruption is a racial phenomenon. Yeah, so, so this idea, again, when, as I mentioned, when we look at this issue of state capture today or corruption, we think that it arrived at our, on our shores you know, at the dawn of democracy. And I, and I guess what we're trying to say is that um, you, you know, you, we're not suggesting, I'm not suggesting at all that uh, there shouldn't be any accountability for elites who are involved in economic crime today. But we need to understand the nature of the networks. And for that to happen in a country like South Africa, you have to go back to a period when white nationalism was uh, was the dominant force in domestic uh, politics. And uh, and therein lies the roots of this, this uh, economic crime. Apartheid was an, a, a corrupt system. It benefited... Uh, few people at the expense of the majority. So that means pre- predominantly white people uh, at the benef- at at the expense of black South Africans. But you know, equally, the system in the way in which it operated globally, as we show in apartheid guns and money, uh, was was bound into processes of economic crime, and so therefore deeply corrupt. Okay, thank you. The second myth you mentioned is freedom signaled a clean break with the past. Yeah, so the, the point there is, Becky, that the, the, the truth-telling that we had hoped would happen at the end of apartheid didn't happen. New elites, for practical reasons, sometimes decided not to deal with these issues, but this effectively allowed the problem to fester and to trench itself. And uh, we saw the arms dealers of the old entering a democratic South Africa and continuing their practice, and we saw corrupt politicians who had been voted in by the majority of South Africans uh, being more than prepared to do business with these individuals for their own profit, at, and effectively at the expense of our democracy. The third meeting discusses apartheid South Africa was an isolated state. So, so I think part of the, the narrative uh, proffered by the apartheid state 
certainly was that it started to see itself as a victim by the, by the 1980s. It saw itself as a victim of an international community that didn't understand it. And that victimhood, you know, if you can, if you can understand it from a propaganda perspective, was very important, particularly to try and point out to the white community um, that it was isolated. And so therefore, it was the responsibility of white South Africans to do everything to back this this last bastion of freedom in Southern Africa that the world didn't seem to want to understand. Now, the truth, of course, is that um, yes, there was there were sanctions in place, but most of those sanctions could there were ways to get around it. It just took cash and a huge amount of money uh, to to be able to do this. But there were willing friends uh, out there waiting to support the apartheid regime. The fourth myth is apartheid was self-sufficient. Yeah, another idea, Prophet, is that the the, the apartheid state um, had this indigenous knowledge, um, and it was through hard work that it was able to build a, a and what was certainly a, a very powerful military industrial complex in South Africa. South Africa by the late 1980s was one of the 10th largest exporters of weapons on the globe. But, you know, much of that relied on elements of local ingenuity, but certainly the re-engineering of weapons that and technology that was procured illicitly um, from, amongst others, UN Security Council members. The fifth myth is apartheid was unprofitable. So at the, at the, during the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Becky, many of the South African business leaders arrived at uh, the South Africa's, at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and in very short hearings that took place, argued that they never made much money out of apartheid. Um, you know, and, and I think therein is partly another lie. The, the, these very big, these big South African conglomerates, the Anglo-Americans of the world, which operate globally, uh, the Glencore, the biggest company in Switzerland today, they really have the roots of their profit making in the the massive profit making during this this uh, apartheid era so you know was south Af- was apartheid unprofitable for for the country's majority in south africa certainly but uh, and were, were sanctions were making were sanctions making this more unprofitable towards the late 1980s yes they were but um, you can't deny the fact that for a long period people made Hey, while the sun shone. Okay, the sixth myth that you discuss is the defeat of apartheid was inevitable. Yeah, so so I think one of the points made in the book, Beck, is is to understand that this network of profit that we lay out through evidence in the book, um, they were, could have further sustained the apartheid regime for a, for a, a far longer period of time. And for a younger generation of South, South Africans, many of whom I and, and colleagues engage with, for some folks, there is a sense that um, at the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela simply sold out by you know, making um, certain concessions at, the, at that point to the business elite or, or not, not agreeing to a process of a confis- mass confiscation of land uh, by, by way of example. Now, those are certain choices that were made in terms of formulating the new the new constitution in South Africa. But I think it's important to recognize that South Africa could have ended up like North Korea. It could have been an isolated state with a, uh, you know, with a, 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 a white dictator uh, who had found a way to accommodate small pockets of black elites, which was happening during that period in apartheid in any event. Uh, and, you know, that relied on on a 
you know, as a totalitarian state in ways in which to crush opposition. It would have been a completely bankrupt state and people would no doubt be dying in large numbers from hunger. Uh, but uh, um, I think the point is that, uh, you know, the, the system could have uh, lived, you know, could have outlasted, um, uh, could have, you know, existed into uh, for a lengthier period, another 10 or 15 years for argument's sake. Partly because of the support it got from friends who were willing to be bought off with uh, with apartheid cash. And finally, the last myth: um, we cannot undo this wrong. Yeah, so so I think the point made in the book as well, Becky, is that while you know I'm not naive to the situation in which South Africa found itself at its time of the transition and the difficulty of dealing with economic crimes. The situation we find ourselves in South Africa is not dissimilar to many other countries that have gone through transitions, whether it is Tunisia after the Arab Spring, Colombia, which is having you know its own experiences right now, um, and other countries where there have been profound changes in government that have taken place. One only needs to think um, you know, of countries like Nigeria or Kenya or others over the years. But fundamentally, as long as we don't tackle these networks of economic crime, the people who have benefited from such crimes, they will ensure that everything is done not only to continue to 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 uh, make you know effectively make profit out of corrupt relationships, but they have an they have a invested interest to ensure that the cover up of their crimes continues. And so the argument here is, is that. Um, you know, it's time for South Africa to have a reckoning with some of those players. Some of those players, which we are focusing on now as an organization where I work, Open Secrets, is not only presenting the evidence in this uh, in these five, five, six hundred odd pages in this book, but it is looking at how we can hold some of the banks in particular in Belgium and Luxembourg, who are central to a global arms money laundering network. Uh, so they, they moved to help, we believe, set up the architecture for the apartheid regime to move tens of billions of dollars across the world to procure weapons. And um, we've laid complaints with authorities in Europe against two of the big banks, uh, KBC in Belgium and KBL, or Credit Bank Luxembourg in Luxembourg, who are central nodes in this global network of banks that uh, supported the apartheid regime, we believe, and made a huge amount of cash off this. Um, and you know, if we can do this as a tiny civil society organization, um, taking on these Goliaths, then we think it's important for the South African government, our own prosecuting authority, and the prosecuting authorities in those countries to take this kind of evidence seriously. Um, I think otherwise impunity breeds. Uh, you mentioned uh, Credit Bank, um, and in the book um, you talked about um, AMSCOR, which we haven't talked about in this interview um, much. You talked about AMCOR having uh, men and women in Paris, who, uh, for example, worked with a credit bank in obtaining cash to procure weapons. So my question is, did credit bank have their own people in South Africa working for their own um, for their own interests? Yeah, so Becky, that's correct. You know, the arms school, the South African state-owned arms company, which still exists today, um, had what we were able to establish for the first time, a secret office in the South African embassy in Paris, which is on the Seine. And from there, their agents would travel. There were about 30 of them at any given time who would travel across Western Europe and elsewhere and buy weapons, technology, sometimes sell weapons. But they would, you know, travel to uh, Luxembourg, um, where they would go to the 
the sister bank of Credit Bank Belgium and Credit Bank Luxembourg was the, the, this bank. And they would then collect the cash, which they would use for payments or redirect cash for payments to, to weapons suppliers. Um, and they, the bank, the, both banks did have representatives in South Africa, but most of that business was happening in Europe. It was precisely because that is where the buying and the selling of those weapons um, were taking place. I think importantly, what we were able to establish through archival research is it wasn't just a question of the banks doing this because they saw they wanted to make money. There was something more sinister at play. The chairman of Credit Bank in Belgium and who had in fact helped establish the subsidiary in Luxembourg or the sister bank in Luxembourg was a man by the name of Andre Vlerik, a former Belgian minister of finance, founder of the leading business school in Belgium that carries his name today, Andre Vlerik, the Vlerik School of Business. The man was an out-and-out, we believe, racist, and spent a lot of his own personal private time building net pro-apartheid networks in Europe. So those networks in Belgium amongst elites there, political and economic elites, <clears throat> and a number of other countries across uh, Western Europe, uh, in fact, modeled on the, in his own words, on the anti-apartheid movement. It would be a pro-apartheid movement. So what you see is a mix of ideology, conservative, um, pro-white nationalist uh, ideology mixing with, with profit-taking. Uh, and it's, you know, quite a toxic mix, but this enabled, we believe, the the relationship between these banks and the apartheid regime to be sustained. And according to some former arms corps officials, up to 70% of all the cash that was laundered through international banks, of which there were dozens, uh, went was then reassembled in, in Belgium and Luxembourg, um, uh, ultimately for the purpose of, of buying weapons. So these companies uh, profited uh, from the appetite regime, um, and a lot of people also got hurt uh, by the regime, whether it's the violence or the wars uh, that took place uh, during the, the regime. One of the big debates going on uh, here in the U.S., for example, is the issue of uh, reparations, which has come back to um, to the public square in the discussions and in the conversations. Um, do you think of any way in which these companies... Uh, will be held responsible for uh, their actions, some form of restitutions that will also go toward uh, reparations for those who were hurt by the apartheid government. Yeah, I think I think the issue of reparations and restitution is key, Becca. You know, at the end of apartheid, um, it was in fact a decision of the South African government, the administration of Thabo Mbeki, the country's second democratic administration, um, where the, the country's truth commission, in fact, had made recommendations that there should be a wealth tax in South Africa for a start, focusing on large corporations. And the Mbeke's administration, which was very much decidedly pro-business, made a decision not to implement uh, that particular tax, which I think was a profoundly missed opportunity. The result is that big corporations in South Africa and globally have tended to give charity in places like South Africa uh, in order to clear their conscience. But, you know, there is no denying that the foundations upon which many of these global empires have been built was made of massive suffering in countries like South Africa. I think there's a strong argument to be made for reparations uh, and for some elements of restitution, focusing on the banks, because that's where we have spent a huge amount of time investigating. And I think we've uncovered um, one of the more sophisticated sanctions-busting networks in the world through this process involving the banks, 
we as an organization, Open Secrets, where I work, are looking at the moment of at remedies and mechanisms to hold this bank to account. And, and, and why do we do this, Becky? I mean, I think the one reason is certainly is the possibility of some restitution uh, or relief. And, and that in itself is incredibly hard. Uh, you know, I think the, the struggles in, in, in North America is an example of this. Um, you know, even the ability to hold corporations who profited off the, the European genocide in the Second World War, it's almost impossible to do that. But it's also because not only are there continuities, but the corp- same corporations are often doing exactly the same thing. This very last week, if I can, if I may use an example, in the Gambia, this you know tiny sliver of a country in West Africa, uh, there was an investigation published by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, a group of investigative journalists who looked at um, the immediate past administration in the Gambia and identified an amount of up to a billion dollars which was looted from from the Gambia. Now, of course, this is the story again of of corruption that afflicts many countries, uh, um, certainly. But key players in enabling this were the banks that allowed the middlemen to bank that cash. And, you know, from the investigation, on the one hand, on the one side of the Atlantic, we see Citibank is implicated here very deeply. But, you know, in Europe, it in fact, the bank that was providing uh, that where the middleman, this was a middleman working uh, for, for uh, the, alongside the Gambian government um, at the time, a man by the name of Mohammed Azizi, who in fact is a, one of the chief financiers for Hezbollah. And he moved that cash uh, through KBC, the Belgian bank, which was linked to the apartheid-era arms money laundering. The uh, Azizi's companies were officially blacklisted, so the bank should have picked it up. By all indications, it didn't do so. And so what we have, if you like, it's not this, you know, the same situation, but a continuity of types of practices. And it's this, it's precisely the scourge that we need to challenge and to break. Because if we don't do that, you know, we see the game continuing in different places in different ways. And ultimately, it's the corporations um, who are the winners while ordinary people suffer. Yeah, and you mentioned that in your book that the deep state is actually um, still present in today's, um, in today's South Africa. So my question is, what, how, do we, how do we end uh, these practices? Um, is it more transparency? How can we hold our governments accountable and uh, require them to be more transparent of their actions? You know, I, I don't think transparency is a walk in the park. We have to force those doors open, Becky. And I think it's the job of scholars and researchers to scour our archives and to tell those official stories, to use our freedom of information uh, laws as much as we can, to work with investigative journalists where we can, and tell the stories that elites uh, don't want to be told, and certainly stories that make them uncomfortable. And, and you know, those need to be evidence-based evidence-based work, which I think we've tried to do in a part of Guns and Money, that um, goes sometimes through the granular detail, but it helps us to understand the scale and the type of, the, you know, the networks that are involved. And we are able to detect when those characters re-emerge in other places. I think it's about preventing these acts, um, you know, from, from reappearing. We spoke at the beginning of this interview about 
the challenge of policy making not being enough. And I guess what I wanted to say is that, you know, I think the the important point here is that we can build um, institutions that on paper look as strong as they are uh, model laws that the world wants to replicate. But if we aren't actually doing the dirty, grubby business of exposing the corrupt elites and networks, of, of embarrassing them, of holding our institutions to account when they fail to prosecute these people, um, I don't think that we will be able to change the criminal systems of power. And therein lies, I think, the, the greatest threat to, to many of our democracies today. And, and that's why I guess I would argue that this type of work this this process of opening secrets is is precisely which uh, you know we as as social historians as as people who care about the nature of our democracies uh, have to engage with and in. Yeah, uh, could you share a little bit about um uh, with my uh, listeners about your organization, Open Secrets? What you do? How can people be involved and help in this work? Thanks, Becky. Yeah, we're we're a we're a small South African nonprofit organization, um, a team of uh, seven of us, and we investigate economic crimes, as you said, that have a link to human rights related issues, both from the apartheid period and contemporary issues. Um, we have, amongst others, held a People's Tribunal on Economic Crime last year in South Africa, including justices of our constitutional court who were on that bench uh, for the very first time that we know of that there's been a, a tribunal simil- similar to the Russell Tribunal in Vietnam or other tribunals in, in Indonesia that have looked at gross violations of human rights that have actually looked at economic crimes. And So these are the kind types of initiatives that we are involved in promoting advocacy, investigations, and then we use the law. So we, with the case of the apartheid banks, are looking at ways to go to court, uh, you know, use the courts rather to hold some of those actors to account. And we do that in all of our investigations. Details about our work are all available on our website, opensecrets.org.za. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenSecretsZA. And um, if anybody wants to reach into their pockets for the couple of dollars small change, we're also always grateful for that support. And of course, if anyone has information that can support any of our uh, investigations, we're always grateful to receive that as well. Uh, and, And all that information on how to do that is available on our website. Thank you very much. Uh, my last question to you is, uh, what is your next project? Are you working on another book and what will it look at? Yeah, thanks, Becky. We, we're involved in a number of investigations at the moment, um, some of them looking at uh, cases of corruption in South Africa, economic crimes in other parts of the African continent. Um, you know, as always with us, it's a deep dive. And I promise when uh, I resurface, I look forward to chatting with you about our, the outcomes of our next project and, and with your listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, my guest again is Henny Van Furen. Um, his, book, uh, his book, Appetite, Guns and Money, A Tell of Profit, uh, looks at elite corruption and uh, deep corruption networks in South Africa. Thank you for coming to the show. Becky, thanks for your time and thanks to your listeners.